Hi, this is John Deke with 25 Years of the Very Young Composers, which is a program of the New York Philharmonic. The music we just listened to is uh, by me. It's called The Snow Queen, and it was performed by the Cabrillo Festival Orchestra, conducted and narrated by Marin Alsop. This is Scene 17, Difficulties, Composing, and Inspirations. In the fall of 1977, having decided it would be better for all concerned, Carol and I eventually parted. I left to go off and live alone. I still gave support to Carol and Alex, of course, remained good friends with Carol, visited and had Alex stay with me on a regular basis, but there was no doubt about this time being clouded over with depression and guilt for all three of us, which lasted approximately three years. But during this time, I continued composing, practicing, and performing especially new music. My first full orchestral piece was commissioned by the aforementioned Gabriel Banat in scene 14, who was also director of the Westchester Conservatory Symphony Orchestra. It was a good chance for me to try out my Sprechspiel, or speak-playing way, of giving text and story to a full orchestra work. I worked hard on it. Gabby was patient with me and the young performers, highly motivated and eager to try something new. As, as new as it was, it was quite difficult. How Gabby pulled it all together in time for the December 10th, 1979 Lincoln Center premiere in Alice Tully Hall is beyond me. It was an illustrated sort of tongue poem based on the well-known story of Heidi, the mountain girl, right? Not surprising for me to take such a text. Anyway, the performance really went well, and Joseph Horowitz gave it a rave in the New York Times. That was great and very encouraging, though I never seemed to be able to follow one successful performance with another. Oh, well, life was not boring, the thing I learned or should have from Heidi was that without trying, my music was tending to be accessible to children. This tendency I neither sought nor avoided, and when someone would ask me what my serious music was, I would answer that this was it, recalling my discussion way back with Peter Shickley in Chapter 6. My next commission from the New York Philharmonic was to write an Obo d'Amore concerto, for Tom Stacy, our gifted English horn soloist. Although I worked long and hard on it, I had a literary collaborator with whom I later disagreed, losing direction and force. Aye. Writing an orchestral piece is like writing a novel, dealing similarly with the public, but using that marvelous complex construct, the symphony orchestra, and in this case, with Zubin Mehta conducting. Frankly, though the work made use of my orchestral skills and my dreams, and the performances by Tom, Zubin Mehta, and my colleagues were brilliant, I think I miscalculated in the end, and though the work got mixed reviews, some favorable, some not, the work was not my most successful. Anyway, during that time, I had also met a young cellist, Jackie Mullen, and at the end of those three years, we had married. We had much in common and started a wonderful and productive relationship, which, although quite rocky at times, has lasted to this day. The rocks, by the way, I blame on myself. But then a breakthrough 
in composing sort of occurred, for which I have my friend and climbing partner Dobbs to thank, when he commissioned me to write a work for himself in the great soprano Lucy Shelton. Dobbs himself had become a fine bassist, and he was giving a recital at the new Merkin Concert Hall, also near Lincoln Center. I forget who decided what, but Dobbs had lived in Denmark and suggested a Hans Christian Andersen tale, and we landed on The Ugly Duckling. Somehow it was the right choice. It wound up being in two parts. One was for soprano and contrabass. Part two was later written for the Newport Music Festival and added a string quartet to the mix. The work has had hundreds of performances and has been translated into several languages. And the same can be said for B.B. Wolf for solo contrabass, for Lucy and the Count, Bye Bye, Greetings from 1984, and other chamber works. They're all works for solo performer and or small ensemble. The thread that runs through these works is a simple, hopefully clear harmonic language and a demand upon the performer to make use of his or her natural acting ability as a musician. I so enjoy pulling into play underutilized skills and resources. I can't tell you how many musicians have discovered areas of their performance skills that they doubted they ever had. Also, I noted once again my penchant toward speaking more of a mm, child's language. As I've said, this is not a matter of an adult composer writing for children. Quite the opposite. I simply found more of my inspiration for composing as if I were a child writing for, well, adults or whomever. Even the risque novel Lady Chatterley's Lover I transferred into a scenario whereby the child, as composer, was watching the titanic battle between Connie and Clifford, and I called it Lady Chatterley's Dream. It was written for a string quartet and piano. In this work, as a number of others, I had the performers vocally, I mean with their voice, toss the narrative of the story from one to another as they were playing. This admittedly added quite a layer, layer of difficulty, but also a layer of texture, both humorous and serious, and a kind of immediate uh, attraction for the audience that I found compelling. Having a string player speak while playing was one thing, but for a wind player? Well, seems impossible, or at least quite unusual. But in a commission for the New York Woodwind Quintet, my setting of the Grimm's Tale the Bremontown musicians, even though it drew surprised groans at first from the players, it got them to dig into the new challenges, and once more, Bremontown has received many performances by groups across the country and abroad. Performances were also increased by my valued publisher, Carl Fisher. One of the most often played and translated works is B.B. Wolf, once again commissioned by Dobbs for the bass, who also wrote the libretto. It stretches the technical limits of the performer while treading that balance of the humorous and the serious. Throughout this time, I felt quite comfortable writing for soloists and small chamber ensembles. I loved the personal feel of this, including the chance to give specific performers the opportunity to flex their dramatic performance muscles, as it were. A chamber orchestra version of the Robert Louis Stevenson tale, 
Jekyll and Hyde, which I reversed to Hyde and Jekyll, featured the cello soloist, occasionally played by Jackie Mullen, and the good Dr. Jekyll on the French horn, originally by Phil Myers or Bill Purvis, as the evil Mr. Hyde. In this case, the text was projected on a screen as in silent movie subtitles. The humor in many of these pieces, often hilarious to audiences, was satisfying, and yet I began to notice, often in retrospect, that they noticed a serious underpinning to it all. This refers once again to my conviction that there's no such thing for me as any difference between my serious music, humorous music, theatrical music, or children's music. There's just my music, whatever it is. One of the works in question which shows to me an example of this crossover is Eeyore Has a Birthday, commissioned by the Apple Hill Chamber Players. First of all, the work had a beleaguered start as the Board of Trustees of the Pool Properties Limited of London stepped in to block completion and performance of my work. I was about to abandon the whole project, but thanks to the persistence of the Apple Hill Board, their lawyer was called in to negotiate a settlement based on the fact that my work did follow the text and the spirit of A. A. Milne's original, as opposed to some other adaptions which we shall not name. And eventually, permission was favorably granted. Hooray! Anyway, to continue Eeyore is a trio for viola, contrabass, and piano. The players once again narrate the tale as they play. Although humorous in its way, anyone who knows Eeyore, the perpetually sad donkey, will know that the story, framed in sadness throughout, still has a particularly sweet and uplifting ending. The Apple Hill Gang understood it implicitly, and Dobbs, Betty Hauck, and Eric Stumacher performed it many times and made a lovely recording. Any group of musicians who can grasp the multiple levels of the work, and I have yet to find a group that doesn't, will seem to have a performance success. One of the finest groups I have yet to work with in this regard is the 20, 21st Century Consort, led by Christopher Kendall. Comprised primarily of national symphony players, they have presented the most exquisite performances of Eeyore and many other of my works, not to mention their limitless definitive performance of late 20th and early 20th centuries of some of our most prominent and insightful composers worldwide. I admire their repertoire from beginning to end. Throwing a new work at them, then, I know that they will always strive at their utmost to achieve a technical and insightful mastery of it. We have achieved a sheaf of wonderful reviews in the Washington Post and elsewhere, but more importantly, Christopher has been an incredible source of support, of conducting prowess and programming brilliance. We'll hear much more about him in these reflections later. Throughout the 1980s, then, my attention was drawn to chamber works, while in the back of my mind, of course, I was always thinking of leading up to full orchestral works. My dream, as I reiterate, of the ultimate musical and cultural achievement imaginable. Back at the New York Philharmonic, my love and constant employer, 
I was privileged to sit as the chairperson of the Autistic Advisory Committee, as I've mentioned, and down on the stage was almost daily treated to a dazzling array of living composers, soloists, and works of the symphonic canon. From Stravinsky himself, Messiaen, Penderecki, Stockhausen, Corleano, Druckmann, Wow, never-ending. And from legendary soloists, starting with Arthur Rubinstein, Horowitz, Milstein, Menuhin, Stern, Perlman, through cellists like Leonard Rose, Rostropovich, Piatagorsky, Nelsova, Ma, Harrell, Dupre. Ah, Dupre. Jacqueline Dupre. I remember distinctly early on a dazzling performance of the Elgar Cello Concerto, with Jacqueline, conducted by her husband, Daniel Berenboim. This was one of the last performances of Dupre before her tragic illness from MS. I couldn't believe the outsized power and passion of her playing. She lifted her instrument to encompass the entire air of the hall. When the rehearsal was finished, instead of retiring to her dressing room, she came over to join the cello section, sitting in the rear, less than six feet from where I was standing, leaning on my bass stool. We were playing a Haydn symphony. She not only played the part from memory, huh, but lifted the whole cello section so that the cellos were louder and more expressive than the entire orchestra put together, which also seemed to catch fire. I sat in disbelief. This symphony suddenly became more expressive and meaningful than ever before. The performer, the performer, composer and performer together, united and inseparable, a team available to lift the human spirit to its breadth and depth and not just to an elite. If only we could make this power inherent in so many, if not all people, available and more widely encouraged. But how? I was still far from an answer. <laughs> 